If you would please turn with me in your Bible to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. Studying the Bible is not like studying any other book in the world. You can study from great scholars, great educators, great writers, and if you'll follow their teachings and you study it long enough, you get a pretty good grip on what they're saying. That is not so with the Word of God. The only way you and I will ever learn what the Word of God teaches is through real heart-searching study and realizing that if you know anything about the Bible, it is because the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you. He is the teacher not the instructor in a classroom and not the pastor in the pulpit. The Holy Spirit of God is the teacher of the Word of God. It seems to me that some people are quite content to call themselves Christians and very seldom ever open the pages of the Bible. May God change that practice if we're doing that in this church. If there's one thing down through the years that I have pleaded, pleading, pleading with God about, would dear Lord help us to get in the Word of God to see what the Bible has to say. And that's why we've been already about nine weeks in the book of John 17, which deals with the intercessory prayer of Christ. I hope you'll follow along with the teaching of this great passage this morning. We're looking at verses 13 and 14. John chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world. Now notice where he's speaking these things. He's talking about his earthly ministry. He didn't speak from heaven, but he's speaking from the earth, speaking in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world." How should a Christian relate to the world in which we live? It changes every day. And it seems like here lately it's constantly changing for the worst. We who claim to know Christ, those of us who claim to be Christians, what should our relationship be with the world in which we live? There are three things set forth in chapter 17 relative to the believer's fellowship with this world. Notice, first of all, believers are in this world, not out of the world. Believers are in this world. If you'll notice carefully verse 11 
and verse 12, there is a phrase in each of those two verses. In verse 11, if you read it, you'll find these words, these are in the world. He's talking primarily about his disciples, but also about other believers who were, pl- who were saved about the same time. These are in the world. And if you'll notice verse number 12, this phrase, while I was with them in the world. Believers are in this world. You say, well, what's so great about that? Well, I tell you what, we must never forget where we are. As a child of God, as a Christian, you all know when you're in church. But you also ought to know that you're in the world. I am in the world. And other believers, as well as the unregenerate, are in the world. We must never forget where we are. We are pilgrims passing through enemy territory. The songwriter was hitting on that when he said, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. There are many dangers in this world for saved and unsaved alike. There are many pitfalls, it seems like, on every hand. We are told in one of the epistles to walk circumspectly in this present world. We cannot afford to relax. We cannot afford to take it easy. The devil is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may destroy. Never expect life to be a bed of roses down here, especially if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, we are in enemy territory. Mr. Bunyan gave God's people a great blessing when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read it, you need to read it. Mr. Spurgeon on one occasion said, apart from the Word of God, it is the greatest book ever written. Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, in which he takes the average Christian on his pursuit in leaving this world and having to go until he's called into the celestial city and all the dangers and all the turmoil and all the heartache and all the heartbreak that a Christian has to go through because we are in this world. I said there are three things set forth in this chapter relative to the believer's relationship with the world. Number one, believers are in this world. Number two, believers are not of this world. They're not of this world. Look at verse number 13 and 14 that follow. Verse 13 says, These things... I speak in the world that they may have my joy. And look at it, it's repeated in verse 14. They are not of the world. 
Look at verse 16. It's repeated word for word. They are not of this world. We can be in this world, but we're not to be of this world. That's a relationship we need to work on. Day after day after day. Though I'm in this world, we're not of this world. It is all right if the ship is in the water. But when the water gets into the ship, it will sink. And so will you. And so will me. We're in this world, but we must be careful lest the world gets into us. We start adopting the mores or the convictions or the practices of the world because it's the thing to do and we want to be accepted. We we have to be very careful about that. All that is in this world is not of the Father. What is in this world? (laughs) 1 John 2.16, all that is in the world, number one, the lust of the flesh, number two, the lust of the eyes, And number three, the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but it is of the world. That's the world I'm living in. And that's the world you and I, both as believers, live in. 1 John 2.16 is the quote that I just gave you. And in 1 John 5.19, it says, We are of God, but the whole world lieth in wickedness. That's where I live. Hey, that's where you live. As a Christian, the whole world lies in wickedness. The third relationship that John 17 brings out is that believers are to be kept from this world. We're not to be like the world. We're to be kept from the world. In verses 15 through 17, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Believers are to be kept from this world. God has made provision for us to be kept from the world. He's made the provision. Doesn't mean it's going to happen in your life. It depends on what you like more than you like the things of God. Okay? What are the provisions? Let me quickly mention them to you. Number one, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He does not dwell within everybody. He dwells within God's people, though who know Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 verse 9, if you don't have the Spirit, you are none of His. Did you hear what I said? He said, well, I'll tell you what, I've been working on trying to get the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have anything. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart and into your life when Jesus Christ saves you and you come to know Him as Lord of your life. The Holy Spirit takes up His abode in our life. He dwells within us. No wonder Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the Holy Spirit. 
We know he's on the inside of us because he makes it very uncomfortable when we start doing things we ought not to do. Okay? Quench not the Holy Spirit. And then in Galatians 5, verse number 17, the Bible says this, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other. The flesh and the spirit are not the same thing. The flesh is the home of the spirit. God the Father lives in heaven. God the Son lives on the right hand of God the Father in heaven. But the Holy Spirit lives in the believer. On this earth. As we traverse this earth during our lifetime. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You say, well, Brother Cozart, why do I have a hard time doing right? It's because you're yielding to the flesh instead of yielding to the spirit. And dear friend, any temptation that you face, you never, never face it alone. He's always there. And he makes it very uncomfortable for the believer to do that which is wrong. And when we do it, we can't have any peace until we confess our sins. And when we confess our sins to the Lord, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's a provision you have indwelling in you today the Holy Spirit of God. Number two, we have the Word of God. We have the Word of God. In Psalm 119, verses 9, 11, and 105, Wherewith shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Verse 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And verse number 105, the word, thy word, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is a provision, my dear friends, to help us walk as God would have us to walk. Believers are to be kept from this world. Brother Roloff used to say, the more of God's word you have in your heart, the less sin you have in your life. And the less of God's word you have in your heart, the more sin you have in your life. They don't work together. They work one against the other. The word. We have the word. We have the church. Did you know that? Some of our members haven't found that out yet. One of the purposes of the church is to keep us while we are in the world. It's a safeguard. In the book of Ephesians, chapter number 4. The book of Ephesians, chapter number 4. Verses 11 through 14. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. Talking about the gifts of God to the church for our benefit as believers. For the perfecting of the saints. Pardon me, verse 11. He gave some apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers 
for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love. God's given believers a church to go to. There are some people in Tyler, Texas today who claim to be Christians, haven't been in church in 50 years. They have no earthly idea what goes on in church. How can you live without your church? I tell you how you can live defeated. You begin to leave your church out and you'll begin to go down spiritually. You'll find that to be true. We have not only the Spirit of God who dwells within us and the Word of God and the church, but we have an interceding Savior. That's what we talk about in John 17, the Lord's intercessory prayer. He's praying for us every day of our life, all the time. He that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleep. We slumber, we sleep, but he never does, keeping us through intercessory prayer. And we have the Christian's armor. Does any of this make sense to you? We have the Christian's armor. In Ephesians chapter number 6, verses 10 through 17. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. In the power, when, when are we to be strong in the Lord? While we're living on this earth. And in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. We're in the world. The rulers of darkness in this world. They're here today, my dear friends. We're to take the whole armor of God that we can withstand to this evil day and having done all to stand and very quickly stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith wherewith you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and don't forget, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. So believers are to be kept from this world. Now let's, let's get into the sermon, all right? Verse number 13 of John chapter 17. There are only two that we're dealing with this morning. And now come I to thee... And these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The subject of this verse is J-O-Y. That they might have my joy in this world. The joy of the Lord 
is my strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't it strange? The devil knows the best time to strike the believer is when he's already down. Therefore, the Lord has provided joy for us. And now I come to thee. Three things involved here. And now I come to thee. He's saying this in regards to his apostles who were listening to him pray this great intercessory prayer. And he's praying for these apostles and also living believers at that time. And now I come to thee. Three things are involved in that statement. Number one, it calls attention that he was somewhere else before. Before he ever came here, he was somewhere else before. In John chapter 17, verse 5, I hope you have not forgotten it. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Before there ever was a Bethlehem manger scene. Before there ever was the incarnate Son of God born of the Virgin Mary. The Son of God was eternally in the presence of the Father before the worlds were ever made. Now that does go back a little further than maybe you can handle, okay? That's pretty good ways back, isn't it? Has always been. Before coming to this earth, he lived in the presence of the Father, glorified in the presence of the Father. We call that his pre-incarnation. He came to this earth for 33 years. He left heaven. He left this glorified position in heaven. He came to this earth for 33 years. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4, when the fullness of time was come, by the way, God always does everything on time. In the fullness of time, when that was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman. In the eons and ages, before there ever was a world, Christ has always been the incarnate Son of God. And yet, my dear friends, He came to this earth and spent 33 years. Heaven must have gone into mourning when the Lord Jesus left glory to come to this earth. But he came to get a job done, and ladies and gentlemen, he did it. What did he come to do? He came to destroy the works of the devil. According to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. When it says he was manifested, that's when he came. In a human body, he was the Son of God, but he's also the Son of Man. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He destroyed Satan's power over the children of God. Now listen to me. 
He came to destroy God's, Satan's power over the children of God. Sin no longer has power over the believer. Romans 6, 4, jot the reference down. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. You know the difference, one of the many differences, but one primary difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A non-Christian sins because he has to. I said he has to. You are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father, ye will do. And the devil's going to see to it that the lost man is going to sin. But when you come to the child of God, he sins because he wants to. There's a difference in have to and want to. Did David have to commit adultery with Bathsheba? No. Did David have to send his bodyguard to the front lines and be murdered at his own hand? No, he didn't have to do that either. He did it because he wanted to. This is a point that you need to get. That one of the blessed things that Christ came to do was to give God's people dominion over sin. You do not have to sin. You do not have to sin. We choose to sin. We choose to look the second time. We choose to do those things which are displeasing in His sight. We choose that. But we don't have to because he's given us the power to say to the devil, No! You go somewhere else. I'm not interested in you anymore. I've been saved by the grace of God. That's going to be better than your Sunday lunch, dear friend. You let that wallow around a little bit. He came, second of all, to atone for the sins of his people. In Hebrews 9, 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. We do not obtain eternal redemption by good works. The Lord obtained eternal redemption for us when he died on the cross of Calvary. He's already obtained it for us. Martin Luther spent the biggest part of his life trying to obtain eternal redemption until he finally realized that just shall live by faith. It's done and trust the Lord who did it. Why did the Lord Jesus come for 33 years? The third thing was to satisfy the justice of God. Now folk, whatever your concept of God is, please include this very important attribute. God can get stirred up. God can get angry. God can show anger. God can show wrath. We do not know exactly how many people died in Noah's flood, but they were in the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions. God, anger was stirred up. Why is God's anger stirred up? Because of sin. Because of sin, God hates sin. 
And yet Isaiah 53, 11, speaking of Jesus Christ, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The father was satisfied with what the son did at Golgotha on the cross. When Jesus Christ hung on that cross, it satisfied the holiness of God the Father. And sin's debt was paid for in completion by those for whom he died at Calvary. Now, if he didn't do that, we better get after it. Huh? And now we see him going back to heaven in Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. That was called the tail end of the ascension. He left this earth and went back after 33 years in this world. And it's all summarized in that prayer in John 17. That begins in verse number 13. And now come I to thee. I was there. I came here. And I'm getting ready to leave now and go back. Why did he come? That they might have my joy. That they might have my joy. It is not our joy. It is his joy that we might have his joy. And he gives it unto us. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It was joyful for our Lord to hang on the cross of Calvary because it was pleasing to the Father. That's why he came. That's why he came. Is there joy in salvation? So, well, I tell you what, if I could just win the lottery, I'd be happy. Well, I don't know whether you would or not. It's a difference in happiness and joy. Happiness is based on circumstance. Joy is based on God's transferring it to your account. When you come to know Christ as Savior, He gives us joy. Has it been so long ago when you trusted Christ that you didn't get a little taste of joy with that? I never will forget. As a child, a small child, I was scared. I was scared to death to even close my eyes and go to sleep tonight because I knew I'd go to hell. And I just thought of that all the time. It scared me. I didn't want to go to hell but didn't know what to do. How do I, how do I, how do I deal with that? And one night, Front Street Baptist Church in Roxburgh, North Carolina, God opened my eyes to see, not only hear the gospel, but to see it that Christ paid my sin debt on the cross of Calvary and forgave me of my sins, past, present, and future. I was the happiest kid on the block. I don't know why everybody else may have been sad. I wasn't sad. I was so thrilled because I felt like now that burden was gone and the guilt was gone. 
That's joy. <laughs> That's joy. I am told that more young people commit suicide than any other gauge group today. You know why they do? They got a gnawing conscience and it won't go away. I tell you somebody that can take that away and that's a grace of God. That they might have joy. Joy of salvation. What about the joy of suffering? Well, I'm not too joyful when I'm suffering. Well, we should be. We should be. In James chapter 1 verse 2, it says, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptation. Now, one preacher wanted to elaborate a little bit on that. He said, now, sometimes when you're preaching, the people won't listen, and some of them dive under the pew, and they dive out through the window, and they dive out through the door, and you don't see them anymore. That's not the kind of divers' temptation. All different kinds of temptations count it all joy huh? when you fall into diverse temptations. Acts chapter 5, you need to read it sometime. The disciples were arrested, taken and put in jail and they were beaten. And while they tried to sleep, the Holy Spirit of God, the angel of the Lord, came and took them out of jail the next morning, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and, and the Sanhedrin, they went to the jail cell to find them and they were not there and they went to the temple and they were in the temple preaching the gospel. And they were released on one basic thing that if you promise you'll not teach any more the gospel, we'll let you go. And Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And they were whipped and then they were released. And when they got to where the church were, was, it said they counted it joyful that they were given the opportunity to suffer shame for his name. There's the joy of salvation, the joy of suffering. There's the joy of security. In Luke chapter 10, verse number 20, 70 disciples were sent out. And when they came back, they gave a report to the Lord. They said, we're just so thrilled. We're having a wonderful time. This, we've never seen things so many miracles. Are being, we, we, we were able to cast demons out of people. And the Lord interrupted them and said, don't rejoice so much over that. You rejoice because your names have been written in the book of life. Huh? Unsaved people have not that privilege The joy of our security, names written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. I believe that. With all my heart, I believe that. Do I understand it? No, but I sure do believe it because the Bible teaches it. This statement in verse number 14 I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Now, what did he just say? The Lord said, I've given to my disciples and my apostles the word of God, and the world hath hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
the world hath hated them. Go down the line. Andrew, who was the brother of Simon Peter, died by crucifixion in Greece. Barnabas was stoned to death in Salonika. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. James, the brother of Christ, was clubbed to death. Simon Peter died by crucifixion. Matthew was murdered with a sword in Ethiopia. Philip was executed by hanging. Thomas died on the coast of India by having a lance driven through his body. The apostle Paul was beheaded. Did he not say that? I have given them thy word, and the word hath hated them. The world hath hated them. The world still does. You say, well, I, 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 and I just, I want them all to love me. That's what your problem is. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Others have paid the price. In Hebrews chapter number 11, and it is necessary that I turn to that and read it for your hearing. In the book of Hebrews chapter number 11, verses 32, and those verses which follow. Hebrews chapter 11. The Bible says, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David and of Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of the weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in flight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trials of cruel mockings, and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts, and in mountains, and in dens, and in caves of the earth. Where do we get the idea that everybody, everybody and everything going to be just kind of hunky-dory when you come to the Lord. Trust the Lord. I'm not a prophet, not in that sense. But I tell you what, unless God intervenes by His grace, we're getting ready to see some hard times in the United States of America. And I wonder if we'll have the grace to be able to stand as these people stood even giving their lives rather than compromise and go with the world in which they live. Now, I get carried away, and sometimes that's not good because I'm missing a very important point here. 
In verse number 14, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Why does the world hate Christianity? Watch it. Because they are not of the world. It didn't say because they are in the world. It said because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world. This gives us the reason for such persecution. They would not compromise. They would not conform. They were early believers who just would not act like the devil, but tried to manifest the Spirit of Christ. And the world hated them. I kind of believe that if we had the quality of Christianity today that our predecessors had, there would not be any such thing as a mega church. There's a difference in Christianity today and Christianity back then. We'll put up with most anything and we'll do most anything and come to church on Sunday singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. Do you really? Do you really? It may be God will give you an opportunity and give me an opportunity for that to really take count. Oh, how I love the Lord. Because they're not of the world. I'm going to have to hurry now. Application for today. How do we apply this? This 17th, how are we to to apply it? Let me make some statements. Those who stand for the word of God will face persecution. That's a fact. If you take a stand for the word of God, you will face persecution. Folks won't like you near as much as you think they do if you take a clear-cut stand for the principles and teachings of God's blessed word. John the Baptist was beheaded. Christ said about John the Baptist, of those born of a woman, there's not a greater than John the Baptist. Well, preacher, if he's so great, why they cut his head off? I'll tell you why they did. He went to Herod and said, Herod, I have a message for you. He said, what's that? He said, you're living in adultery. Come on. You've set your affections on this woman and she belongs to Philip. She is the wife of Philip. Now you've taken her for your own. You can't do that. That's adultery. Huh? Now a little bunch of old mill preachers that we have today always say, well, we just don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. God help us. That's what's wrong with the church, my dear brother Parks, as we've come to condone what God's word condemns. And we'll pay for it. 
If we do that in this church, you listen to me, we'll pay for it. They cut his head off. There's a price to be paid for preachers who contend for the doctrines of grace. I found that to be true. Before I came to embrace the doctrines of grace that the Lord revealed to me, that salvation was of the Lord, completely of the Lord, before I did that, I had so many revival invitations, I couldn't, I couldn't feel, I couldn't, I just, everybody wanted me to come to their church. And when I embraced the doctrines of grace, nobody wants me. Something happened. Then I had this multiplied library. I never even studied some of that junk anymore. Huh? My appetite changed. People are being ostracized and forced out. And some preachers are being impeached for preaching against sin. Yes, sir. In Little Rock, Arkansas. And I started to tell you what the name of the church is, but I better not do that. I could, I could tell you because I know the man who pastored that church. When God began to reveal truth to that preacher, he started preaching Sunday after Sunday. What does the Word of God say? What does the Word of God teach? And I tell you what, the deacons, and nothing wrong with a godly deacon. If they're godly, that's fine. But I'm telling you, when you've got a little clique in your church that wants to tell the preacher what he can preach and what he can't preach, you're in bad trouble. And on Sunday morning when the preacher, this preacher friend of mine, got up to come up on the platform, the deacons formed a circle around the pulpit and they locked hands and forbade him to preach God's word in the pulpit at Little Rock, Arkansas. You're welcome. It can happen here. You know why? Because we have a different brand of Christianity today than those in days gone by. Those who endeavor to live holy lives. And I like this one, I must include it. Those who refuse to bow to the God of ecumenicity. What's the God of ecumenicity? Nebuchadnezzar. Ecumenicity is, he wants all the religions to come together and he wants to be the head cheese over it. That there be no doctrinal divisions or distinctions in preaching the word of God. I mean, just put these little uh, isolated doctrines aside. Let's just preach love and happiness and joy and peace and all this good stuff. You can just build a church if you do that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, thank you. He said, if you don't repent, and if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you into the den, into the the furnace of fire. And uh, they said, go ahead and chunk. Be fine with us. And they were, why why is that so? Because of ecumenicity. Ecumenicity, ecumenicity. I don't care for that word, so I find it difficult to pronounce sometimes. 
We're different because God made us different. And we should never be ashamed of it. I thank God for this church and what we hold and deem as truth in this church. Three little brief statements and I will close. Never forget where you are. You say, well, where am I? You're in the world. Don't you forget that. You are in the world. Number two, never forget who you are. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And number three, never forget why you are here to honor and glorify the God of the Bible and His Son, Jesus Christ. Don't forget those things. You've been kind to listen to me. Ponder them. Study the Word. And if these things be so, adopt them because they're truth. Let's stand, please, for prayer.